I was extremely negative. I've been through all this abuse and I'm struggling with all these things. All I could focus on was how much I didn't want to be alive anymore. And so I was reading about positive psychology and how gratitude actually changes the way you process information over time. When I first tried to list something I was thankful for, I couldn't name one thing. I was so angry and negative. And over time, I would try to just say, okay, I'll just list one thing a day and then three things a day. And now the last thing I do every day is I open up a Word document and I do my list of 10 things that I'm thankful for. And it has completely changed my life. Before any world-changing innovation, there was a moment, an event, a realization that sparked the idea. Before It Happened is a show about that idea. I'm Donna Laughlin, and each week I'll take you on a deep dive into a singular light bulb moment that inspired the visionaries to push forward and change our lives. On this podcast, you'll hear from innovators from an array of industries and philosophies who imagined and are still imagining the future. Grab your passport and let's go on a journey together. Welcome to the first episode of Before It Happened for 2022. I really wanted to start things off with a bang. So I'm super excited about my first guest of the year. Johnny Crowder is a lot of things. He's an entrepreneur. He's the lead singer of the heavy metal band Prison. He's been a TEDx speaker. He's a writer, and he's a powerful visionary who managed to turn a difficult childhood and history of mental health struggles into a revolutionary way of reaching people in need of support. Johnny is also the founder and CEO of Cope Notes, an SMS-based mental wellness platform that delivers daily text messages to help users almost train their brains to think better and healthier thoughts. Johnny is something of an expert in how to use short, self-affirming messaging to improve his mental health. From his childhood into young adult life, Johnny was in therapy. Over those years, he was diagnosed with ADHD, OCD, bipolar disorder, and schizophrenia. But all the treatment and all the medications still left him feeling empty and angry and filled with anxiety. He says that for years, he tried everything under the sun to feel better, except fixing himself. Until he finally did. And now he's on a mission to do the same thing for people around the world. Johnny was born in Tampa, Florida. His childhood was filled with trauma and abuse. From a young age, he dealt with physical, sexual, and emotional abuse. He and his brothers grew up around drugs and alcohol, and he had trouble with anger and depression both in and out of the home. So I grew up with two parents and two brothers. I was the middle child. And it was not a healthy environment. So drugs and alcohol in the home, a very abusive environment. And both of my parents are still alive. Both of my brothers are still alive. And we are all working on repairing our relationships with one another. So I'm super conscious of how and when and what I share. But yeah, there was, I think it was just a family full of people who learned the wrong ways to communicate and express frustration. We never really learned the correct way to control your temper or to treat 
other people the way you would want to be treated. It was just wasn't a super healthy environment. So let's talk about school and say K through 12. What were you into in terms of, because you're such a creative person, were you into writing or in music already? Or what were your favorite subjects and, and what types of things sparked your curiosity? Well, for context, my older and younger brother were very like all-American guys, football-throwing, truck-driving, beer-drinking, you know, like dudes. And, you know, I was the kid in his room using pastels to try to draw a piece of fruit or something, or I was the person who was like trying to write a poem. And I was just always very much on the creative side. So I always found solace in art, expressing myself through art, whether I think in elementary, a lot of that was like, Definitely reading and writing and art, actually drawing. And then middle school, I got a lot more into music and started playing guitar. And I was like, wow, I didn't realize I could express myself in this way. And then towards high school, I got back into visual art, doing graphic design and some graffiti and really playing guitar a lot more, actually writing whole songs. And that's when I joined my first band was in high school. So I think... Art was always part of it, but I think in younger years, it was more like mixed media and like even doing theater and comedy and collages. And then by high school, I was like, yeah, music is it. And did your school have art programs or was this all self-discovery? In middle school, I had to like petition to re-elect art every year as my elective because you're really supposed to do a bunch of different ones. But I would like collude with the art teacher to let me do art one more year. And then high school, actually, I don't believe we had art as an elective because I was in the IB program. So our electives were more like psychology or something, which is the one that I chose. So were you reading art books? Were you inspired by various artists or what particular movement of art? Or I really liked abstract art. I really liked M.C. Escher style art that was like very trippy and confusing. Salvador Dali is one of my favorite artists of all time. And then there was also an element of really getting into graffiti in high school. Where I went to high school, there's graffiti over like all the buildings and in the locker rooms. And it was just very much a part of that area of Tampa. And I just was like, wow, I'm in love with this modern urban art style that's like really poppy and loud colors and and that drama always attracted me. So what music influence? What were your brothers listening to that ultimately you didn't listen to? What inspired you? Well, growing up, we had, my mom had two cassette tapes that I got to use on her cassette player. The Aerosmith Greatest Hits and Beverly Hills Ninja soundtrack. For whatever reason, those were the two cassettes that we had. So I'd listen to them nonstop. And then I eventually got an FM radio and just would listen to the rock station in Tampa. And growing up, like my brothers were listening to like Lil Wayne and Eminem. And I did like stuff like that, that pop and rap. But rock is, I think, what like carried me away. Old radio rock, like Three Days Grace or Seether or System of a Down or Linkin Park around the year 2000-ish. And once I discovered that, I was like, you know, I still love rap. I still love acoustic. I like some pop, but rock was the thing that made my eyes wide and made me think like, I want to do this. 
what do you call your style of music? Is it metal? We just say metal to keep it easy. But if you want to get more specific, we're like new or alternative metal. I love the balance that my current band, Prison, has because we can be really heavy, but also talk about very serious topics. And we are very clear about our positive attitude and our positive outlook. And we try to make a positive impact every time we play a concert. So we can be very light and goofy, but also very heavy and serious, even within the same song on stage. And we fortunately have cultivated a fan base that appreciates both sides. But it wasn't always like that because my first band was called Dark Sermon. And that was all about being heavy. So I was not interested in being vulnerable or showing my goofy side or anything like that. I was like, I want to be heavy and scary and mean. And truth be told, it was something that made me feel powerful in a season of my life when I did not feel powerful. I was experiencing a lot of abuse and I felt powerless in that. I felt powerless against my mental illness. So I wanted some kind of vehicle to feel strong. So Dark Sermon served that purpose for me. But after a while, it became so much work, like only showing one side of yourself to an audience is infinitely harder than just being yourself on stage. I was just too afraid to truly be myself on stage until this band prison. I think all the time about how when I was maybe five years ago, I was like, how the heck am I going to make my music line up with my advocacy? And then now I'm like, oh, it's all the same thing. Like, I don't care if I'm doing a comedy show or playing a prison concert or speaking at a conference or doing press for Cope Notes. It's all, at the end of the day, it all funnels into mental health advocacy, which has always been my heart. So I want to talk a little bit more about some of the things that led up to you creating Cope Notes. What can you share that helps us explain your story leading up to where you are today? I always tell people that I never really had like a quote unquote normal or typical day of childhood. So I didn't like go play soccer and then eat a popsicle and then pet some dogs or whatever. My days looked more like I was self-harming as a toddler. So this is even before elementary school, I had to be watched because I would hurt myself. And in elementary school, I was obviously not developing the same as the children around me because I was hallucinating and having very wild mood swings and exhibiting behaviors that were atypical. And it made it really hard to make friends and also put a huge target on my back. Because who are you going to make fun of? If there's, you know, 30 kids in your class, are you going to make fun of the guy who's playing baseball with everybody or the guy who's like talking to himself in the corner. It just made it so easy for me to be singled out. And it was challenging for me to make friends because I was experiencing such a different version of life mentally and emotionally. It was hard for me to connect. So I did have some people who were patient with me and just thought like, well, every seven-year-old is super weird. So I'm sure Johnny is just his own little brand of weird. So they were friends to me throughout all of those periods of development. Kids don't want to be different. They want to fit in. And when kids like Johnny don't fit into a certain cookie-cutter shape, they're automatically labeled as other. But Johnny was experiencing this lack of acceptance at such a young age before he had the cognitive ability and social skills to navigate his way through it. I wanted him to tell me how he managed to do it, his answer, he didn't. 
at least not well, until he figured out how to channel his anger and frustration into his art. I was angry a lot, unfortunately. So a lot of my coping really looked like me just being violent, unfortunately, and just losing my temper. And I think art was one of the only things to really calm me down. If I got really, really frustrated, I remember there was Actually, there are several occasions on which I have like punched a literal hole in a wall. And just as a teenager, I would get so angry. And I remember this one time I punched a hole in the in the hallway of the house that I grew up in. And I knew that my dad was going to kill me. This was not a small deal. And I went to my room and I picked up my guitar and I just started playing anything, anything that came to my mind. And it was like in five minutes, my heart rate slowed down. And I started breathing more clearly. And for me, it was, I was less likely to reach out to somebody and much more likely to turn to just let me step away, give me a little bit of space and let me engage with some type of art or music so that I can like channel that into something productive. And then when my brain fog has cleared, when my cortisol levels have come down, then we can have a conversation about it. Yeah, so you just redirect your energy into this creative therapy, right? Basically. Sometimes a little bit too late, <laughs> like after an outburst. But yes, that was where I turned. So when did it escalate to being more suicidal? Was that as a, as a teen or was that later? Yeah, that was definitely, I think middle school was when I, which is shocking for me to even say, because as so I'm 29 now. If I thought about, I worked with middle schoolers at my church. And if one of them said they were experiencing suicidal thoughts, I'd be like, what are you talking about? You're just a kid. Like, enjoy your life. This is so awful. But for me, you know, I'm in sixth grade and I think and write and draw about ending my own life all the time. And I think towards high school was when I started getting more serious about having real plans and real intentions and setting dates and stuff. I think middle school was more fantasizing. And then high school and college is when I was in real physical danger. And did those around you realize that? Or did you escape to your creativity and art and, and not show that? I think everybody likes to think that they're like a master actor or actress. They're like, oh yeah, nobody knew I was going through anything. I totally pulled it off. Or you like, you come home from school and you're like, yeah, everyone thinks I'm fine and no one's going to ask me questions. But in all likelihood, when you leave a room, someone's like, oh, I wonder what's up with her, you know, like, because people are really intuitive. So at the time, I thought I was hiding it all super well. And keep in mind, I'm still experiencing abuse, right? So I have to hide. Not only do I have to hide the abuse stuff that I'm experiencing at home, but then I have to hide the internal battles that I'm going through mentally from everybody all the time. So Instead of focusing on schoolwork, I might be focusing on making sure that Amanda Tilchin doesn't think I'm weird because I want to ask her to homecoming, right? So I had to like guard my real self from being seen by anybody for fear of being ostracized. And honestly, looking back, I thought that I was getting away scot-free, but I remember asking one of my friends like, dude, I don't know how you didn't know that I was going through all this stuff. Looking back, all of the signs were there. And my buddy who I was talking to said, oh, we all knew. It was just like way too uncomfortable to talk about. So we did, and we didn't know what to say. So we didn't bring it up. And I'm like, what? I could have died. And like, 
everybody knew and nobody said anything because it would be awkward. I pulled up the stats of last week on the general mental health data, Mental Health America report. It says nearly one in five American adults will have a diagnosable mental health condition in any given year. 46% of Americans will meet the criteria for a diagnosable mental health condition sometime in their life, 46%. And half of those will develop conditions by the age of 14. And then the other number, this is overall, number of U.S. adults with mental illness, 44 million. And that includes anxiety, addiction, bipolar disorder, depression, PTSD, schizophrenia, and then in the LGBT community, which is where my son would reside, 37%. So those are some big numbers that I wasn't even aware of. I mean, I hear them change every year, but they're also in some ways the same every year. Like the prevalence is always way more than the average person would consider. In fact, I remember when I was in high school learning about schizophrenia. So this is after I had been diagnosed with schizophrenia and I so didn't believe my doctor. I like didn't want to hear it. I was so angry and I was like, you don't know me. And then I'm in my psychology course and I'm reading in my textbook that it affects like 1% of adults or something or like one point something percent. I was like, what? That's so many people. I thought it was just me, but there are literally millions of people all over the place that are experiencing this. Like I'm not that weird. A sentiment that I hear and sometimes feel is like, oh, that happens to those people. Or like, I don't fit that description. So I hear people say like, oh, I don't really have OCD like that. And then they continue to describe things that would classify as OCD symptoms or behaviors. But they say, but I don't have OCD like that person. So I don't really have it. And it's like we create these little boxes. And then if we can just disqualify ourselves from fitting in those boxes, then we can coast through life without actually looking at our behavior closely. Not that we should do that. It's just what we do to feel safe. Yeah. And so when you're given this, I'm going to call it the alphabet soup list of things, how did you cope with that? So my immediate coping strategy is a popular one. It's called denial. And I just completely was like, nope, you're wrong. You don't know me. And it took me months in bouncing from doctor to doctor before I actually was like, okay, enough doctors have said this to where they might be on to something, maybe, and I should probably listen to something they say. So basically, I was I, I did not want to take medication because I've been clean and sober my whole life. So I've never tried drugs or alcohol or anything just because of what I saw it do to my friends and family. So then you have a bunch of doctors say, take these drugs. And I'm like, yeah, right. Like, I'm not going to take that. I know what that does to people. And I had to like it was actually, I was in a psychology course while this was happening. And in the psychology course, I was learning therapy alone has this percentage of efficacy rate. Medication alone has this percentage. And then medication and therapy has this high, even higher percentage. So this is in college? No, that's in high school. Oh, high school. I took higher level psych as an elective in high school. So I was literally taking college-level psychology. Because they wouldn't let you take any more art classes. <laughs> yeah, correct. And then when I just learned, like, hey, when you combine medication and therapy, it has the highest efficacy rate, I was just like, 
I want my recovery. This is a hilarious perspective, but looking back, I was like, I want my recovery to be as short as possible. So I just want to get through this and get it over with. So I was like, if we have to do therapy and medication together, and that helps me get over it faster, then I'm down. So I just, it took me months of denial and kicking and screaming and fighting. But eventually, I was like, if I don't do this, I'm probably gonna die, you know, literally. And then did you go straight to college? Or did you have somebody at school that was guiding you to get to the next level in college? Or was there a gap between high school and college? I told my parents, I was like, I'm gonna be a rock star. And they're like, well, whatever. You have a full ride scholarship from your magnet program. You need to use it. You are not going to waste a paid for college education. So I said, okay, I'm going to go for music. And they're like, ha, no, you have to go for something real. And I was like, okay, I'll go for writing. And they're like, no, you have to go for something real. So psychology is what I wound up going to school for. And I had no idea that I would be running a, a mental health technology company at this age. I was like, well, I guess I just have a psychology degree that I probably won't use, but it has become more and more useful as time goes on. So you were an honor student. Correct. Which is amazing because it requires a lot of discipline. Yeah. And yet you're coping with all this personal, I'm going to call it, somehow you obviously you pulled your, your weakness and turned it into strength. I mean, that's not easy to do. No. And it was honestly... Like if you were to assign me and then another kid that did not grow up in the household that I did and was not dealing with mental illness, this, the exact same assignment, it would take me three times as much time and effort. And it was just harder for me. Like I could do it, but it it was like I had to break my back to do things that looked and seemed very easy for other people. And I think it was because, you know, I'm like, I'm writing an essay and then I have to like have a conversation with someone who isn't real. And then I have to convince myself that that person is not real so that I can finish writing my essay. You know, there were like so many invisible obstacles that would be so hard to describe to other people. And then you started a band in high school. You go to college. Did you start another band? Yes. It was actually the same band. We just changed our name. So it started as in reference to a sinking ship. And then we changed the band name to Dark Sermon. And then I met my college advisor and he was like, hey, what's your plan for next semester? And I said, I'm going to drop out and get signed and tour full time in my metal band. And he was like, whatever. And then that's what happened. My band started touring full time. I finished my degree on tour and then we got signed. It was like Looking back, it's one of the most wild things that's ever happened to me. But in the moment, I was like laser focused on just doing music. I didn't care about anything else. So you're on the road, you're doing all this music, then you go back to school? Like, when do you decide to go back to finish your degree? I was actually finishing my degree on tour. So if you can picture this, I'm like in the back of the van while we're driving to the next venue on my computer and with my textbook out. I completed the rest of my degree online. Amazing. Yeah. It was really hard to do that while I was touring, by the way, and dealing with everything else, but I'm glad I did. Johnny would eventually find a life-changing coping mechanism in the unlikeliest of places, sticky notes. After years of therapy and meds that did little to ease his anger, anxiety, and depression, 
He started scribbling self-affirming messages on sticky notes and leaving them all over the house. For a while, he found them uplifting, but eventually he realized the feeling was fleeting. He knew he was onto something, but he needed a new delivery system. What he landed on would change his life forever. So let's talk about that aha moment where you just you just described a little bit. You started using sticky notes for yourself. Oh, so the sticky notes were for me because I wanted to interrupt my day. I wanted to reach into the cupboard to pull out a pan to cook some eggs and see a sticky note that I left for myself in that pan that had some kind of challenge to reframe a prevailing negative thought written on it or something. So it was like a true interruption of my day. But it's really hard, just like you can't tickle yourself, it's really hard to surprise yourself or challenge yourself, interrupt yourself. So I started trying to set randomized alarms, but then you're setting them. So on some level, you know they're going to go off. And it was like, it just became so difficult for me to truly surprise myself and interrupt that negative thought pattern. So I sent the texts to friends to see if I could interrupt them because they didn't know what I was doing. I gave them no warning. I didn't say like, hey, I'm going to be trying this thing. I just texted them out of the blue, whatever I needed to hear in that moment. And everyone kept saying like, holy crap, how did you know? This is so relevant and this completely applies to what I'm going through because I was typing out a text message or copying and pasting it to like 30 people. And I'm like, this is not practical. Like, I'm going to screw this up. So I looked online for SMS marketing software, and I'm like, there must be some way that I can sort of plug in a spreadsheet and like automate this. So I started doing that. And then that was around the same time that Not a Therapist, we were like eight months into running Not a Therapist. And it was a digital peer support resource where you were able to access peer support digitally, which was cool. But You had to like book an appointment, you had to enter personal information, and there were all of these things that people said, you know, I wish I didn't have to do this, I wish it didn't require that, I don't want my personal information in here, I don't want to make appointments, and so on. So I conflated both me sending those text messages, having a positive response, and then the components of not a therapist that people weren't that excited about. And I was telling my, I had a mentor at the time who I was explaining all this to. And I'm like, yeah, I want, I wanted to keep building Not A Therapist. I'm like, we're going to have t-shirts, we're going to have a video blog, and we're going to do... And he was like, Johnny, stop. You keep saying a million things, and it's great that you're excited about this. But if you could pick one thing out of everything you've told me about that would make the biggest impact, would make the most people feel better the soonest, what would it be? And I was like, oh, that's easy. It's the text message thing that I was explaining. And he was like, so just do that. And then you can build out from there. So I kind of dropped the nine other things that I wanted to do and just focused on sending the text messages with no idea that it would literally become the entire business model. You you said that you go from the, the sticky notes to a text to 32 friends. I believe it was 32 or 30 some friends with a message. What was that first message that you sent in that group? I don't remember the exact wording, but it was something like the second half of today. Yeah, it was very similar to this. It was like the second half of today could be better, even if the first half kind of sucked. 
there's no telling what will happen in a couple hours. So like, it was just that little bit of perspective. And I was very surprised to see how many people that resonated with because it was a shot in the dark for me. I just texted people what I wish somebody would have texted me, basically. And it was at the point, did you, was that just like a friend-based, just friendly text? You weren't thinking business at this point? No, <laughs> no way. I never planned on starting a company. I never wanted to. All I've ever wanted to be is a rock star. I never wanted to be like a tech CEO. It's just, I will say, while I am a lot of things, some good and some not so great, I am certainly a good listener. If I'm performing and I tell everybody to jump up and down and only a few people jump up and down, I learn, okay, in Kansas City on a Tuesday night at 8.30 p.m., this is not a jumping crowd. So instead, I'm going to ask to see if they can put their hands up or if they can crowd surf, they can sing along because they don't want to jump. So I do that same thing in business. I put something out there and then based on the reaction, I either double down or pivot. And when I put cope notes out there, it seemed like people really liked it. So I kept doubling down until we had 20-something thousand subscribers. I already had a lot of the infrastructure built from Not A Therapist, so I repurposed a lot of that. I mean, it must have been just a few months, probably like three months between deciding that I was going to focus on the text messages and then actually, quote, closing Not A Therapist and then starting Cope Notes. It was basically like shutting down version one and opening up version two. How did you assemble your team? We have a very small team, which is why I love technology. I wouldn't want to have a brick and mortar store where we would need to have all these people. We have less than 15 people working on this right now. I mean, outside of, we have a clinical oversight panel, but those, they're not like contributing on a weekly basis or anything. It's more like project basis and contract, but we have less than 15 people working on this on a regular basis. And a lot of them have just been people who... Some of them I did hire because we put out a job application and they applied and then we hired them. But about half of them we've hired just because we've connected with them through advocacy or ministry or I met them seven years ago doing a different project and then we just wound up reconnecting. And what about people who might not be able to afford the subscription vets and any special groups, do you offer discounts or special pricing for nonprofits and groups like that? That's actually where the group subscription came from, like the enterprise level subscription. So let's say you are a foster child in the state of Iowa and you need daily mental health support. We contract with youth and shelter services. So YSS like that. And they purchase subscriptions in bulk to distribute to the foster family. So when we do a group subscription, almost always it is, if it's with a nonprofit, because we do like employee wellness and student wellness and stuff like that, but especially with nonprofits, what they'll do is they'll buy subscriptions and then go out into their community and be like, okay, who in these underserved communities can benefit from this? And they will give them the subscriptions for free. So 
Let's dig in a little deeper in Cope Notes because I've been using the app and I like to feel inspired. I wake up to a lemon tree every morning and literally life makes me lemons. That's how I start my day. And I'm thankful for the fruit of the tree. And I just think that I use that as a positive anchor. So now I got Cope Notes and I got my first message and I'm like, oh, I had to kind of ponder and kind of think. And it was pretty cool. I think one of the biggest problems I was trying to solve was we were asking so much of people and a lot of digital health resources do this. They're like, oh, do you need help? First, you have to reach out, which is impossible to do. It's kind of like saying, oh, you broke your ankle, ride your bike to the hospital. Like, no, that is such a huge thing to ask somebody who's hurting in that way. Cope Notes is providing daily mental health support via text message. So all the texts are written by peers with lived experience, and then they're reviewed by mental health professionals. And regardless of whether they contain a psychology fact or a journaling prompt or an exercise, whatever it is that's in that text, it's short and easy to understand and to the point, and then we deliver them at random times. So no two people ever get the same text at the same time. You never know when we're going to text you or what it will say. But over time, those interruptions to your day interrupt negative thought patterns and train your brain to think in healthier patterns. And then we encourage people to text back and speak freely and use that text thread as a digital journal. So the digital health landscape as a whole says, why don't you work up the courage and oomph to reach out? And then once you do, we'll pepper you with a questionnaire with all this type of information that you have to enter. And then you have to, it's just such a huge task and with Cope Notes, we're trying to just say, you don't even have to think about us. You don't have to reach out. You don't have to even tell us your name. We will interrupt your day. And not for an hour. We're not going to have like one big hour session once a week or something. We will interrupt you 30 seconds here, a minute here, 60 seconds or less per day. And over time, it's going to make that big difference where you don't have to figure out when you're going to schedule an appointment. You don't have to run your billing through insurance or share information with your employer or, or your health provider, anything like that. We just wanted to make it simple. You're a little bit like Noom, you know, There's, which I think is a, a great app community. It's not just an app, it's a community and a lot of thoughtfulness. But you're not a cure, you're a motivator and an enabler, right, of empowerment. And that's what I personally, that's my takeaway in my window. And I, and I think that's what makes it great because it it's like, ooh, a scary place that you're going. It's like, oh, this is actually a really good, you know, it's like stretching before you exercise. It's a good thing. And so I look at that and then setting like stretch goals, you know, it's like, okay, so where are you taking me on this journey with Cope Notes? So now I have the curiosity factor, right? And I hope that's how it's being received by those I've given it to, because I think that's really cool. In your TED Talk, you say that optimism is the challenge of the century. What do you actually mean by that? And is the world changed or people changed? Like, what can you explain that a little bit? When you say it kind of in a vacuum, it sounds fairly negative, but I can also understand that even in a vacuum, it kind of makes sense. Like a hundred years ago, so think of the previous century, how much tragedy and bad news did you really have access to on a daily basis? Like right now, if a mine collapses in Somalia, 
it's on the news in Tampa Bay. And then if I watch that, I just go through my day thinking, oh, all those poor miners. Well, oh, no, I wonder what happened. We have instant on-demand access to tragedy and bad news like 24-7. So I think our exposure level is so much higher that it takes that much more work to choose to seek out positive things just because we have so much on-demand immediate access to scary and awful things. Why do you think people are more likely in 2021 after COVID uh, too, and you talked about this as well, is people started looking at their values and people started looking at their lives differently and talking about it more. Do you think this will continue? Like, you know, Cope Notes is one of the drivers in this conversation and you're kind of pushing people to be more open in general, to not be ashamed and to speak up and yeah, and not just, you know, do it alone, you know. <laughs> in the Cope Notes brochure, it talks about how ver- almost half, it might be actually technically a little bit more than half of all mental illness goes untreated. And that is in large part due to something called self-stigma. So we're familiar with social stigma, like other people judging us. But self-stigma is when we judge ourselves. Like, oh, I don't need to go see a therapist because I'm strong. That's you judging yourself. You're basically saying to yourself, if I get help, if I get treatment, that's a sign of weakness. And it's this self-judgment, this self-stigma that keeps us from progressing in many cases and getting the help we need. So one of Cope Notes like determinants of efficacy is lowering self-stigma. That's like one of the things that we try to focus on is you will get text messages during your subscription that you will read and you'll go, mm, I bet this is supposed to help me lower my self-stigma and accept myself and feel unashamed of what I'm going through and not judge myself for what I'm experiencing. Because we do recognize that that's one of the main reasons why people fall behind and stay behind is because they think, oh, if I reach my hand out for help, what does that say about me? And what we try to say is it says you are strong and intelligent and brave and you're taking action. You're responsible. And what do you think we could all do better as a society and to just be more aware and, and have more empathy? I think if we picked one person in our life that we were curious about, we shared one thing about ourselves that was vulnerable, and then we asked the other person if they had ever experienced anything similar. That's it. I think that's one of the, the great things that you're doing, not just with Cope Notes, but the balance that you have between your music and your creativity and you're inked up. And some people might say, like you said in your TEDx, I don't a doctor, I don't look like one. But it's like, I think the generation needs that shakeup, right? It needs to know that it's okay. And you're cracking that open. So I also noticed that you had, you call it gratitude tattoos. And I'm just curious how that started and what you are most grateful for. Oh, yeah. Most grateful for is probably my recovery, I think. Like the fact that I'm able to function. Like this morning I put on deodorant. And I walked outside of my apartment. And like that stuff is not lost on me. Like for, I don't know. I think people see like the version of me that's in press and they're like, oh, well, he's all better now. And I'm like, well, yeah, but you didn't know me when I couldn't walk down the stairs or make a sandwich or like I literally wasn't able to function. So there are every single day I have moments where I'm like, wow, I like 
stepped on a crack and I didn't cry or I could sit near a window and I wasn't afraid. There's so many things that people don't know that I couldn't do for for decades, literally. So I think I'm what I'm most thankful for is my recovery because it allows me to experience things that I couldn't experience before that are just truly like human experiences that are so cool. And I think that the gratitude checklist came from, this is what it looks like. I know that listeners can't see it, but that came from realizing that I was extremely negative about everything I had experienced. All I would think about is like, oh, I've been through all this abuse and I'm struggling with all these things and I was feeling so negative. All I could focus on was how much everything hurt and how much I didn't want to be alive anymore. And so I was reading about positive psychology and how gratitude actually changes the way you process information over time. And I was like, when I first tried to list something I was thankful for, I couldn't name one thing. I was so angry and negative. And over time, I would try to just say, okay, I'll just list one thing a day and then three things a day. And now every single night when I get in bed, the last thing I do every day is I open up a Word document that right now has like half a million words in it by now because I just do it every single day. And I do my list of 10 things that I'm thankful for. And underneath that, I pray. So I I ask for all the help that I need. And it has completely changed my life. Like now you could say, give me 10 things right now. I'll be like, I could totally list 10 things. And it's not like, I'm thankful for my food. I'm thankful for my friends. Because that's what I would do as a toddler at the dinner table. But really, I can be like, I am thankful that I'm sitting on an exercise ball right now because my chair squeaks during podcast interviews. So I never sit on it during the interview. I always sit on my exercise ball and I love this thing. If you can zoom in close enough to identify all the things in your life that you're thankful for, it just doesn't feel quite as dismal and dark. That was Johnny Crowder, founder and CEO of Cope Notes. It's important to note that the text messages users receive are not arbitrary words of encouragement. Cope Notes is not sending out digital fortune cookies. Johnny says every text is written by someone with real life experience overcoming trauma or mental illness and first reviewed by certified mental health professionals before sending. And the messages can take all sorts of forms. It could be a journaling prompt or maybe a tip on how to improve your mood or handle adversity. Johnny says he looks at his mission with Cope Notes much the same as he looks at his music. He believes there is nothing more punk or hardcore than using positive messaging to help people in need. Thank you for listening. Follow Before It Happened on Instagram and Twitter. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and share the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Before It Happened is produced by me, Donna Laughlin, along with Studio Pod Media. The executive producer is Katie Sunku Wood. And all episodes are written and developed by Jack Brewer, with additional editing and music provided by Noda Lab. <laughs>